Welcome to Reading Between the Lines, the People's Friends story podcast in association with the Odd Fellows. Each episode, a few of us from the Friend team, along with some special guests, will delve into our archives to find a story to read, and then we'll all sit down for a wee chat about it. Make yourself a cup of tea, pull up a chair, and come join us. This episode, we'll be reading The Black Sheep of the Family, A Tale of a Fancy Dress Ball, by Evelyn Hope, which was first published in The People's Friend in May 1911. This story will be read for you by Marion from the Friend Features team. I'm not a great big fan of this, but uh, I'm, I'm keen to see what you think. So, over to Marion. Ah, oh, it's good to be in England again. Thank heaven for London, said Mick Maloney, as he strode along the pavement towards the marble arch in the hot dune sunlight. Mick had landed the day before from Australia, and though shillings were scarce with him, he decided to waste a few in obtaining a glimpse of London. London in June of coronation year, the London he had known and loved so well ten long years ago. Mick was hardly attired for a promenade in Hyde Park. He wore no collar, and his coat was turned up round his sunburned throat. His blue serge suit was shabby, patched and almost out at elbows. A dilapidated wide-awake shaded his brown, handsome face. His boots were deplorable, yet there was a look of distinction about him. He bore himself with an air which caused more than one pretty woman to glance at him with interest. Mick leaned on the park railings and gave a deep sigh of content as he watched the procession of well-equipped carriages and motorcars and admired the charming, beautifully dressed women who occupied many of them. There were crowds of celebrities and illustrious foreigners come from many lands to do honour to the new king. London was more than usually interesting. How I've missed all this, murmured Mick. Then, slightly adapting home sweet home, he added, There's no place like London. There's no place like town. He looked his fill at the gay scene. Then, as the park gradually emptied, he drifted aimlessly away like the derelict he was. He walked down a wide street of handsome houses, bright with flowers at their windows. At length, he sat down on a seat beneath some trees, in company with a blind beggar and his disreputable-looking dog. Mick was hardly conscious that he was hungry and tired out as well, for he was drinking in the well-beloved sights and sounds of London again. His was the old story of the family black sheep. Though to do him justice, Mick had never done anything especially wicked. He had been foolishly extravagant and heedless, spending more on his friends than on himself. His parents died when he was quite a child, and the uncle who adopted him had a stubborn pride and fiery temper that equalled Mick's own. Mick had to listen to many lectures on his spendthrift ways, and at length there came a day when his uncle declared he would pay no more debts for his nephew. He would cut him off without even the proverbial shilling. Mr Maloney did not mean all the bitter things he said, but Mick did not stop to argue the matter. He was far too proud to ask for help from any of his other relatives. He disappeared from the world that had known him and became, like thousands more, a wanderer on the face of the earth. 
By and by, the sunshine faded. The summer dusk crept on, and the great electric globes flashed into light. Jingling hansoms dashed by, and smart taxicabs with people in evening dress. The traffic roared unceasingly. Far above the haze of the great city, a slender crescent moon shone faintly. The blind beggar had long since shuffled off, and the seat was filling with other dejected, tired-out creatures. At a handsome mansion opposite Mick's seat, a festivity of some sort was evidently taking place. Carriages and motorbrims filled with gaily-dressed people came up in quick succession. He rose, and crossing the road, pushed his way to the front of the little crowd that had gathered to watch the arrivals. It was evidently a fancy dress ball. A stout and solemn gentleman, dressed as a clown, had just passed up the wide steps, accompanied by a very coquettish little nun. A smart motor with a solitary occupant drew up next, and Mick saw a pretty, fair-haired woman prepare to descend. Beneath her long silken wrap was a dress flashing with jewels, and on her dainty little head shone a star of diamonds. She carried a long silver wand in her hand. On the step her foot slipped, and she stumbled forward with a little cry, but Mick sprang forward before the smart footman had time to reach her, and caught her ere she fell. The girl looked up into Mick's stern, handsome face with a bewildered expression in her soft blue eyes. Mick? Mick Maloney? said the girl under her breath. She stood erect again, but she still retained her hold on his arm. Will you give me your arm, please? she asked as Mick made a movement to escape, and he had no alternative but to obey. What character can you represent? she inquired with a mischievous little smile. This is a fancy dress ball, as you no doubt perceive. I might be tired Tim, or weary William, or better still, the black sheep of the family, the sheep that took the wrong turning. Oh, there are endless characters I might represent, Betty, Miss Desmond, I ought to say. You're still wickedly proud, I see, said Betty Desmond, in a low, moved voice, as they went slowly up the steps into the big entrance hall. No, you shall not escape me as Mick tried to withdraw his arm from her gentle grasp. I have a right to be obeyed. I am a relation. Well, second cousin, anyway, and I want your escort. No one here will recognise you, Mick. And indeed, what matter if they did, she continued. Oh, you needn't look uneasy. The dance is given by my godmother, Lady Eileen. But she will not be likely to question your presence before the other guests if you were with me. As for dress, why... You represent a gentleman, in disguise perhaps, she ended, glancing at his shabby clothes and the battered wide awake in his hand. I am a sundowner, if you know what that is, replied Mick with a reckless laugh. He noticed the amused, questioning glances of some of the gaily dressed crowd who were now thronging the hall. I know I look like that character anyway, but Betty, let me disappear, won't you? This is not fair to you, little cousin. People will talk. I like to hear you preach convention with a big C, declared Betty. She slipped off her cloak and gave it to a footman who stood near, for she was unwilling to lose sight of Mick again. Now, we will go upstairs, she announced, slide past Aunt Eileen and find a quiet place to talk. The ball is given in my honour, so I must put in an appearance later at any rate. 
Together, they ascended the staircase. Mick's shabby appearance did not excite so much notice that he had supposed it would do. In the general progress upwards to the ballroom, he was next to a most realistic chimney sweep and a villainous-looking burglar with a black mask, a dark lantern and a bunch of gigantic skeleton keys who attracted much attention and comment. Mick noticed one or two old-time friends amongst the throng, but they gazed at him vacantly and knew him not. His little relative piloted him skilfully past the hostess, who gave Mick a cold stare of puzzled inquiry. Betty knew the house well, and evading would-be partners, she led Mick to a balcony which overlooked the park. Heavy curtains formed a screen, and the lilting strains of a two-step came but faintly to their ears. Betty motioned her companion to a chair and sank into one herself, a fairy-like figure in the soft summer twilight. Oh, Mick, Mick, she cried. Where have you been all these years? Tears filled her lovely eyes as she spoke. Why did you go away without a word to me? To any of us, I mean. And you never wrote to me. You were only an infant when I left England, said Mick. Sixteen, weren't you? It would hardly have been fair to write. Your people would not have liked your receiving letters from the family scapegrace he continued somewhat bitterly. I was a weak fool to come to London again. I didn't think anyone would recognise me, though, and I have been very wrong to let you bring me in here tonight. He rose as he spoke, and stood looking down with weary, longing eyes at the girl's fair face. You were always too hasty, Mick. Your uncle didn't mean all he said, Betty told him, as she too rose and laid a slender hand on the sleeve of his frayed coat. Above the trees in the park, the moon shone brightly now in the deep blue sky of the June night. The scent of the mignonette in the garden below came up to them. It's like another life to get a glimpse of you, Betty, and it's like you to be so kind, said Mick, trying to smile. But I mustn't stay. I've signed on for another voyage, and I'm due at the docks tomorrow early. I'm going back to Australia again. Perhaps you've other ties there said the girl, with a half-averted face. Nope, Mick answered shortly. I never cared for anyone out there. I don't believe you ever gave your Uncle Geoffrey's feelings one thought, Mick, declared Betty plaintively. Ah, you're very cruel and selfish, for he has suffered, poor man. He's so fond of you. After you disappeared, he left no stone unturned to find you. He did everything possible. He employed detectives and even put imploring advertisements in the agony columns of the papers. Won't you go and see him before you sail? I won't, and I think you rather exaggerate my uncle's sufferings, Betty, said Mick. He would do all you say merely for the sake of appearances. But let us talk of something pleasanter than my unworthy self. How goes life with you, little cousin? I'm tired of it, tired of everything, Betty told him frankly. I'm so sick of the eternal round of society with its silly conventions, new crazes and scandals. I'm getting stricken in years, you know, Mick. I'm 26, and I suppose I'm getting old and cynical. The women of my world are like that, or else they're trivial and empty-headed and pleased with life. The men, too, very much the same. Are you sure? queried Mick. Isn't there one man who stands above the rest? There was a moment's pause. In the distance, some chimes rang the hour, 
11. Betty's little fingers played with the flowers in her bodice, and she raised her eyes to his as she said softly, Yes, that is, but he's not in society, and I don't think I am anything to him but a memory, perhaps. Mick caught his breath and clenched his strong hands as he gazed at Betty's lovely upturned face with its dreamy blue eyes. He longed to clasp her in his arms, to kiss that sweet mouth, just once. Why shouldn't he? he asked himself. She cared for him, or thought she did, although it was probably only a feeling of pity after all. He would at least have one poignantly sweet memory to carry with him into exile. What harm in a kiss? The temptation was strong, but brief. I've been a fool and a knave pretty often, he told himself, but I can't show that side of me to her. This is goodbye, Betty, he said, very gently holding out his hand. I should do no good by seeing Uncle Jeff. No doubt he has got over the first sting of grief at my loss. He would hardly welcome my reappearance now, I think, in spite of what you say. You can tell him you've seen me if you like. I should not advise you to, but it can't do any harm, for you don't know where I'm going. Australia is a bit vague as an address. I rather enjoy my roving life, and you mustn't pity me. I've been lucky generally. Oh, Mick, don't leave me, implored impulsive Betty. I've thought of you so often all these years and long to do something for you. I've lots of money, Mick. Give me the chance to help you. Dear, you can't, he said huskily. If I stayed, I should find no place in life here now. Still less could I go and start again with your money. I'm not ungrateful, little girl. I'll never forget your kindness. Goodbye. He raised the little hand to his lips, and before Betty could stop him, he was out in the brilliantly lighted corridor, and the heavy curtains fell behind him. The band was playing a languorous waltz. The wide staircase was almost deserted as Mick hurried down it. A stout and elderly Piero was leisurely mounting upwards, accompanied by an ancient Briton in heavy fur garments, which looked strangely out of place on a hot summer night. What a queer get-up, Mick heard the gentleman in skins remark as he came downstairs towards the pair. Strange ideas some people have, to be sure. What does he suppose he represents? A vagabond at large, I should say. I hope Lady Eileen has a few detectives about this evening. But the Piero had sprung forward with a cry of amazement. He held Mick's arm in a vice-like grip, while Mick stared in stupefied amazement at the face of his uncle beneath the jaunty cap of a Piero. You young scamp, gasped his fond relative, to cause me these years of anxiety. How dare you? The ancient Briton, suppressing an exclamation of surprise with difficulty, fled up the staircase, leaving them together. Mick sailed for Australia six months later, with a view to buying a sheep farm. But he did not go alone. Betty, now Mrs Maloney, accompanied him. She was leaving society forever, and Mick was no longer the black sheep of the family.
Did you know that The Odd Fellows has been helping its members forge lasting friendships and offering them help in times of need for over 200 years? And the good news is that it's still going strong today, with a network of 309,000 members and 121 branches all over the UK. If you find that you need a little support or advice during a difficult time, Odd Fellows can help. And if you'd like to meet like-minded people and get together for a chat, Odd Fellows can help with that too. They know that people can achieve so much more by coming together than they ever could alone. Be part of a friendlier society. Give the Odd Fellows a call today on 0800 028 1810 for a free information pack or visit oddfellows.co.uk to find your nearest branch. They'd love to see you. Terms and conditions apply to all member benefits and services. Now, let me top up my tea, grab some of my friends, and we'll have that wee chat about the story you've just heard. Before the break, you heard The Black Sheep of the Family, A Tale of a Fancy Dress Ball by Evelyn Hope, which was read for you by Marion from the Friend Features team, who joins me now. Hello, Marion. Hello. Alongside Tracy from the Friend Fiction team. Hello, Tracy. Hi, Ian. And Barry from the DC Thompson Archives. Hello, Barry. Hello. So, the black sheep of the family. I guess the place to start with this story is, how much of a black sheep do we really think Mick is? It seems like an awful lot of this is in his head. Well, if this had been submitted to the fiction desk, I would have sent it back and asked for a rewrite. I thought it was quite an intriguing story, but I want a bit more of a backstory. We need to flesh his character out just a little bit more um, because it does leave the reader a little bit shortchanged. It's um, very much shown and not told. So I would send send it back for a rewrite and say, right, let's have some more information here. I thought from the beginning of it that um, Mick had been sent to Australia, which would have made him a convict, which would have made... that. That's kind of how I thought. And then as we're going into the story, you learn that that's not the case. He, he is independently able to go back and forth or he signs on with ships to go back and forth, um, which I think takes away what could have been a, a fairly dramatic development in the story. Well, it really wrong foots the reader. I mean, no point when you read the the name Mick Maloney, do you really think, well, this person's very well connected to high society London. Um, there are connotations of, you know, the transportation to Australia, which had happened in sort of living memory. I think they ended around about 1868. So, you know, within living memory, this this stuff had happened. And I, I did wonder if this was a deliberate ploy on the part of the writer to, to really wrong foot us because it goes in a direction that I hadn't expected at all. Yeah, I mean, Tracy's right because it's almost as if the last 10 years never happened, apart from to his clothes. Yes. <laughs> the only way we get to know the guy is through the description of what he's wearing, including his disreputable shoes. <laughs> We've all got them. Yeah, there's a lot. Of, uh, I thought that was quite interesting. All the way through that first, that first section, there was all these D words to describe him: dilapidated, deplorable, drifted, derelict, disreputable, and dejected. All crop up in the description. And you're right. All the Ds. Yeah, all the Ds. It's just I thought that was quite interesting the way that uh, Evelyn Hope approached that that character. I mean, I, I don't know about 
his time in Australia, I was actually more curious as to why he was in London. He just seems to be randomly in London. It's not. It says it's in the year of uh, the coronation. Um, doesn't say he's there for the coronation. He's just randomly in London for twenty four hours because that's something you could do at the turn of the century. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I would take Tracy's point. I think. I think there'd be maybe a little bit more in meat in the bones from that respect would be welcome. What's he, what's he doing in England at all? Because when he leaves Betty, he's going back to Australia practically immediately and he's only just arrived. He just wanted a flying visit to Regent's Park, yeah. apparently. That's, <laughs> without, the, without the fancy dress costume you know, party, that's, that's all his trip is. It's a lounge around somewhere slightly colder than he'd been before. Oh, but it's still lovely. I mean, we're recording this and we've got snow pelting down outside the window as we're speaking. And I was reading that and thinking it would be nice to be in a nice warm park in June at the moment. He it said that Mick was a bit um liberal with his family's money, and that's what has him labelled as the the black sheep of the family. But it's not suggested at all really that he put his family in any dire straits. Um it's his uncle's footing the bill for all of his debts. And then his uncle decides to stop doing that. But there's no sense that um, the bailiffs are at the door. The The sense is just there. He he just decides, OK, well, you're not going to pay my debts. I'm away. Um, the, the whole thing seems to be entirely um, kind of in his head, uh, which the the heroine of the story uh, basically says to him once they, they get together. She says, you've always been this kind of prideful person and you've made this rod for your own back and then sailed it to Australia. Um, <laughs> so I guess that, that seems to me to be another avenue that the author could have explored to make the story slightly more dramatic. Tracy, would that be the sort of thing that you would be looking for them to, to punch up? Even if it's just a, a slight um, flashback or something, but just to give him more of a voice to then speak to the reader. I think we would expect just a little bit. Uh, there, there's potential there to make him a more rounded and interesting character because there's obviously stories there, and you know you want to know maybe what he's got up to in Australia. You know, you just feel he's a little bit one-dimensional. Everyone else is speaking about him, but we don't get to hear from him. So that's where my interest was piqued. So that's why I would say it was a rewrite rather than a rejection. But I think I don't know if a backstory in this instance would be that interesting. I mean, it does say that you know he, he was just more thoughtless than than malicious, um, and I don't know really know if I don't know what you get from a backstory from that. I mean, it would be a bit dull because if he was a real wrongun, um, he wouldn't be a people's friend hero, would he? The readers wouldn't be rooting for him to end up with his. Second cousin, um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's a, I don't know where you would go with that. It's certainly a story that had potential, I think, but it wasn't very well executed. There's so much going on there um, that personally, I I want to know. If I read that story, I want to know more about those characters. Um, so that's a slight frustration with this story, but I didn't really dislike it because I saw an opportunity to have a really longer interesting story there even his time travel from Australia back to London <laughs> and back again 
<laughs> it doesn't fit for the time, but it almost had the feel of a script because yes. he's passing all the characters in fancy dress on the stairs and the coquettish nun and the Viking and goodness knows what else. <laughs> and you could almost see this happening. It would illustrate very well. That's the scene, I think, that you would choose to have illustrated him in his grubby clothes and all these fantastic costumes round about him. And what's with the coquettish nun back then as well? (laughs) That was a bit (laughs) racy for the friend, was it not? Yeah. I did think that your narration, Marion, managed to to capture the... uh... The, I, I'm going to say capture the sense of the story. I mean the story and not the sense of the coquettish nun, just in case you're wondering. <laughs> the words were on the page. But it made me laugh because it, we're just really out of Victorian times and they're so very straight-laced and this didn't seem to fit with straight-laced Victorians at all. No, it didn't. One of the things that made me laugh as well was that brilliant bit where the, um, is it Betty, the, this, the, the cousin, was saying that, uh, you know, She's obviously getting on a bit. She's 26 years of age and she's stricken with years. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're elderly at such a young age back then. But she was jaded by 26. I love that. <laughs> Weren't we all? It's a tough life for a cousin wife. <laughs> I was also, I was wondering about um, characters' ages because he says when he left, she, she's wondering um, why he didn't write to her. And uh, she says you were. He says, "Sorry, um, you were 16. So how old is he? Because it, it's not really told. So w- did he leave to go to Australia because he'd spent all his family's money in his early twenties? Mm-hmm. He must have been old enough to go, mustn't he? I mean, did you? Did they have passports in those days? How old did you have to be to have your own passport? And how did he go? That's what we all want to know. Tracy's right. We need some backstory. This is ridiculous. Yes. See, I'm really intrigued. Well, there's a potential for another friend writer. Story starter number two. Yes, I think we'll change second cousin to family friend. Yes. So I think we'll have that. Coward. (laughs) (laughs) And another, this is just me firing questions at everybody because I... uh, I read the story and came away much less impressed than all of the rest of you. What is a Piero? Oh, it's like a clown. Oh, it's like one of those, yeah, Piero clown thingies in the in the white frilly costume with the black pom poms on. David Bowie in the Ashes to Ashes video. Ah, I see. Now I'm with you, David Bowie. I know. References earlier than that—that's where I start to get lost. You're so young, Ian. I like that aspect where the um, towards the end it, it got quite interesting because that that Piero when you think about it, he's coming down the stairs he's just about to leave and we all know he's the black sheep of the family we know his appearance and as he's walking towards these two people there's a Piero and an ancient Briton and the writer wrong foots me again I expected the ancient Briton to be the uncle given the, the description of him you know then to sort of severity or whatever. But the writer wrongfoots us and then introduces the Piero, who has traditionally uh, wears white makeup and an all-white uh, costume, and therefore just exact opposite of mixed appearance and you know the exact opposite of the imagery of the black sheep. And I'm inclined to give the the writer the benefit of the doubt and say that was a, a deliberate a deliberate thing. That's a very astute observation there. I like that. That's why he gets the big bucks. <laughs> well, it's tied in as well with the fact he's you know, he's going down the stairs to a waltz. You know, the waltzing Matilda aspect of um, 
of you know his swagman persona. So I, I think the writer had a, I think there was a bit more potential. I think the Tracy Knight, there was potential there, and maybe it wasn't fulfilled because it ends so abruptly as well. It ends very abruptly. Do you think it was maybe a longer piece that was paired back? I thought about that actually, if it had been sort of subbed to death almost. Um, which is a shame. Perhaps they took out the backstory. Yeah, no, exactly. I didn't hate it. Certainly not. Um, if that had been an author that had submitted it now, we would work with the author and make suggestions. And I think that story could have been a goer. Barry, maybe you'll be able to tell us kind of in, in this sort of time period, uh, is that a thing that would have happened as a matter of course? Would it be an author would submit a story and then someone from the team would get back to them with rewrite suggestions like that? Um, or would it be just submitted and either put on the page or rejected? Um, for that period, we don't have a huge number of records, but I know that not long after this, we do have some correspondence. And I think we do have some people's friend correspondence. And it's with some of our bigger names. And yes, things were often sent back. Uh, just some of the feedback was kind of brutal, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, they didn't mince words. They couldn't. You know, if you were te- sending a telegram or even just a, a letter, you know, you had to be very concise and tell them exactly what you wanted. There was no finessing this, you know, the nuances and and the almost semi-apologies you can convey over a phone call when people maybe didn't have phones uh, and didn't have that, that technology available to them. It was, um, yes, th- there was definitely a, a to and fro. The, the editors knew what they wanted. Uh, I think there was a bit more latitude with the bigger names, but for sure that, that there was definite feedback. How does that feedback work at the moment, Tracy? How how do you find it when you're going back and forward to authors? It, it's actually, it's quite a nice process, to be honest with you, because because you're asking for changes or rewrites, you're already invested in the story and you feel it's got potential. And one of the great parts of our job in the fiction team is actually having a relationship with an author in that respect that, you know, it's maybe a part of the story, a direction of the story that they hadn't thought of or they're so invested in, you know, getting the basics right that they sometimes forget about the lovely frills round about a story that you can indulge yourself a little bit with the characters um, and let them just come to life a little bit more. So it, it takes a fresh pair of eyes sometimes to to look at a story and think, Do you know what, I can see where this could go and it would be fantastic. So there's always collaboration, um, especially, I think, with the serials, because that's a huge undertaking for a writer and it's quite a tricky process. And that's where um, we feel... We, we we love our job in that bit because it's a, it's a real privilege to work with writers as well. And if you can suggest something, they incorporate that, send it back, and it's top-notch. It's a great feeling for both of us. So, yeah, it's an ongoing thing. I suppose you don't get that much fun on the features team, Marion. <laughs> we get lots of fun on the features team. Whatever makes you think that. It's, it's a society story I'm digging for, guys. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have as many unsolicited manuscripts as the fiction team do, obviously, but we do work with features writers to tweak them where we think they're maybe not quite right or there's maybe a different line that somebody could go down and make it even better than it already is. Um, we 
very much work as a team with our writers as well. Do you think there's scope here for a People's Friend Features podcast? <laughs> Do you know, there's so much fabulous material in those archives. I know when we've been producing the souvenir editions over the years that we've been up to archives and we've been photographing the bound volumes and half the time we haven't wanted to go back to the office because there's so much we've found that we're just absolutely loving it. And that's why we got the dog to chase you out. <laughs> such a treasure trove you're so lucky to work there Barry I know we're slightly obsessed with the archives I didn't like to say but it is getting quite creepy um <laughs> we'd noticed um it's just is it the archives or the archivist we're never sure um, <laughs> no, no you're right David there's, there's there is we've been saying this for years there is a a gold mine in there and uh, as has been evidenced by the podcasts all these stories that haven't made it to um the specials uh, all these stories that haven't maybe been seen for over a hundred odd years, and there's some absolute crackers in there. And I think some of the writers, I, I think it's just too easy to say, "Oh, it's just writing for magazines." But some of the writers have exceptional skill, possibly because they're writing for magazines. Once you impose some of these size restrictions in terms of columns and words and so on, I guess people have to get a bit more creative and they have to do in a bit of their own editing just to whittle things down. I'm not saying it always works. I think in this case, there could have been a little bit more, you know, it could have expanded on, like you say, the backstory, maybe the characters for sure. And, you know, what did they do? What happened at the end? Why Why was that so rushed? Why was he in London? I want to know this. But um, <laughs> no, I think, yeah, there's, there's, there's golden damn there hills. Can I just point out as well, Barry, um, once things get back to normal, we will be having fiction workshops that you can mm. listen to us spout off about this sort of thing at great length, about backstories and character development. Well, you guys, you run this this uh, Writer's Hour every every week on Twitter. Yep. And here you've got all this stuff just sitting there that you could put to write and say, well, how would you do this? Isn't that a, wouldn't that be a great exercise? You know, here's this here's this story which we see the potential in. What would you do with it? Yes, absolutely. And it would be interesting to get different writers, you know, takes on it as well. Because often we'll see Mick one way, and someone else would potentially see him as another. And that's what's brilliant about it. So there you go. If you're if you're listening to us uh, at the moment, and Tuesday is approaching. Um, what to do, have a think about how you would expand on this story, either in terms of a background for the characters or maybe what happens post-sheep farm to Mick <laughs> and Betty in Australia um, and take take to Twitter and have a word with Tracy um, Tuesday at 11am at the People's Friend Writing Hour. Uh, I think that's probably a good place for us to conclude this episode. So um, it just remains for me to say thank you to Marion for her sprightly reading of that story. Um, and thank you to Tracy and Barry for joining us as well. Um, and thank you at home for listening. And until this wee group of friends gets together again for another story, from the friend to you, cheerio. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Reading Between the Lines. Subscribe in your podcast app today so you don't miss our next story and check our previous episodes for more from the Friend Archives. We'd be delighted if you were to recommend this podcast to your friends. If you don't already get The People's Friend, because you listen to Reading Between the Lines, you can now get your first 13 issues for just £8. 
and that special offer is available until the 31st of May 2021. Check the episode notes for details and terms. And for more from The People's Friend, visit thepeoplesfriend.co.uk or find us on Facebook and Twitter. Haste you back. There's a dainty little journal that has read both far and near. It has had a host of rivals, still it stands without a peer. It is bright and entertaining from the first page to the end, and is known to its admirers as the dear old people's friend. A charming little journal is the friend. Of good things it is such a happy blend That to read it at your leisure is a pleasure without measure The friend to friends in trouble recommend They won't be happy till they get the friend